The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hey there. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out space news commentary and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. 23 years after the first module of the International Space Station was launched into space, the station is getting another major upgrade. On January 11th, 2021, NASA announced six new advanced solar panels will be installed on the ISS starting later this year. These panels are much more efficient than the originals that were installed in the early 2000s and will enable exciting new experiments on the ISS going forward. Today, we dive into what makes these panels special as well as the impact they will have on the ISS and its commercial successors. Yes, yes. All right. We have a very very exciting news here. Um, The space station is getting six new solar arrays. So if you've seen a picture of the International Space Station, the kind of uh, bow tie visual silhouette is defined by these eight uh, solar arrays. So there's two sets of four. Uh, kind of like a a double H um, because kind of a visual description of that. Uh, And they provide the bulk of the space station's power. So the space station uh, is on orbit um, and they use electricity for heating and cooling and experiments and all communications and all the different functions that they need. Uh, But these panels are very old um, and they've actually degraded into space. And this is part of the uh, 2024 expiration date for this space station. So right now, according to NASA, uh, the funding for running the space station is set to expire in 2024. Uh, Boeing, which is the prime contractor, uh, their contract is set to 2024. And they just signed this kind of extension uh, earlier in 2020, in July. And NASA has been doing a lot of talk about what is the actual end of life for the station. I I also want to point out one thing, and that this 2024 expiration and the current end date or whatever, that's more than, that's like 25 years since the first module was put into space, which is probably older than uh, some of the people listening to this podcast. So I just wanted to highlight that fact because when I realized it, it kind of, um, it puts into perspective when we're talking about 2024 and, and onward, like, ooh, it's, uh, it's a long time. Yeah. So with the current funding date uh, ending in 2024, there's talk of what is the actual uh, end of life for the station. So a lot of talk has been talk. Uh, pointing towards 2028. Uh, and this lines up to about a 30-year lifespan uh, for the modules, originally launched in 1998. So uh, according to Bill a uh, national official speaking last year, uh, he said, I think we have a good operational life at least through 2028 and possibly a little bit further beyond that. Uh, we'll just need to continue to watch the station and continue to maintain it. Uh, but the follow-up to that is what we don't want to have happen is where we're spending more time doing maintenance than we are doing research. Uh, at this point, then the utility of the station starts to diminish. We have not seen that. Station is very viable, at least through 2028. 
Bill Gerstenmeier, didn't he resign? Yes, he did. So, do we trust him? Um, <laughs> I mean, he resigned. He's probably getting charged with, with uh, I don't know, it's, it's not treason. Contract fraud? I guess bri- it's not bribery. Okay, I just wanted I like what I what I heard you. Th- so so, what he says about the station though, is still true. It's still like from what we can tell, that's still accurate, right? In his in his formal technical opinion, I think that is is accurate. The caveat there is uh, he was forced to resign for con- collusion with Boeing on uh, the HLS contracts. And Boeing is the prime contractor for the space station. And so he might have some incentive to be favorable to Boeing. Um, And the longer the ISS uh, continues, the more money Boeing gets for maintenance and repairs and and things like that. So given that context, you maybe, but uh, I think it's safe to say that this technical assessment uh, is relatively accurate. Okay, fair enough. So with that said, the kind of the key um, determination for how long the International Space Station can continue to be operated and flown is really this tipping point between the cost of maintenance and the value the station provides. And as components age, the cost of maintaining them dramatically increases. Uh, eventually to the point where you have to replace entire modules and you're kind of rebuilding the station from scratch. Like there are right now is uh, is one of the major things. The solar arrays are like just need to be replaced because they're at the end of their design life. So this is one of those, one example of, of what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people are talking about these new solar panels and one of the questions I've seen is, is this a big deal that the ISS is getting new hardware? Um, the, according to the uh, United States, the United States orbital segment was completed in 2011. So the, all the models that they had built and launched, they were considered functional. Obviously, new experiments have happened and improved over time. Um, but there hasn't really been a big... Um, core change to the station uh, since then. Um, And part of this is that it's a very striking visual change. Um, So these are new solar panels that are being added on top of the existing panels, but the prior changes have been, you know, moving docking ports around, replacing internal components like new batteries and radiators and things like that. Uh, There's also been test uh, modules. So the Bigelow expandable activity module uh, went up a few years ago. Um, and actually the prototype for these arrays, the rollout solar array launched in 2017. So they've actually tested an experimental versions of these, and this will be the, the six production variants of this. This is a big deal because it's a lot of work and a major change to a major system, right? Like the solar arrays are what keeps this astronauts alive because they power life support. Yeah, this is this is a major critical system. Uh, it's actually a major improvement, which is really exciting. These new panels are smaller and take up less area, uh, but they're so much more efficient that they're uh, actually a huge boost to the total amount of electrical power on the station, which means new experiments, um, new 
um, applications, you know, they could potentially put uh, electric propulsion on the station now with more power. And all of that is because of the advanced technology that these new solar panels are using. And we'll get into the advanced technology in a little bit. But first, um, how does how did these solar arrays, these new solar array work and upgrades get funded? Like, how does that that work tie in to the bigger picture? Yeah, so these these upgrades were kind of um, a surprise. Um, most people have been talking about the end of the station. They weren't expecting kind of this big core upgrade. But they're actually being paid for through Boeing's ISS Vehicle Sustaining Engineering contract. Uh, and that's with NASA. And this extension is actually valued at $103 million. So we're getting six new solar arrays for $103 million total. And then NASA will be flying those up on uh, Dragon spacecrafts uh, in the in the trunk uh, starting later this year. Okay, so I'm assuming that does not take into account the launch cost. So that's just the okay the component cost. Next, we'll we'll talk about the solar panels themselves, and then after that, the prospects for what comes next for the space station with these new upgrades and and what the next few years look like, maybe decades. Who knows? So one question I had when I read this article was like, how are they, how are these solar arrays different? Are they the same, you know, solar blue solar panels that you might see on a solar farm or something like that? And um, I got into a little bit of a rabbit hole uh, when it comes to understanding what makes up these solar arrays. So if you'll humor me a little bit, it, it gets pretty cool. The main point like why I went down this rabbit hole is because I wanted to know what is different about these new solar arrays from the ones that are already there and were launched in the 2000s. In order to explain the difference in the solar arrays, like how they, how the new ones are, are better or how the new ones um, are more advanced in terms of technology than the old ones, I kind of want to explain the fundamentals of how solar arrays, how solar cells actually harvest energy, how they collect energy from light, because I don't know, it's just super cool to me. So the fundamental, like the the thing at the center of solar cells is a PN junction. And this is a type of circuit uh, made with semiconductors where you have two, uh, imagine two sides of a circuit with a gap in between. Um, One of the sides is doped with extra electrons um, or extra holes for electrons to go. There are different types for these. You have an imbalance, right? And a gap in between. And on their own, those electrons on the one side would want to jump across, but they don't have enough energy to get across this gap. So uh, at rest, nothing really happens. Things stay where they are, uh, more or less. But uh, the really cool thing is that because of the semiconductor materials and construction and stuff, when you add photons to the system, the energy from the photons gets absorbed by some of these electrons and gives them that extra boost to jump across the gap. And then once they absorb that energy, they can't jump back. So you end up collecting more and more charge on one side of this junction, which you can Uh, whisk away to other parts of your system. In this case, that charge gets collected into batteries. The catch here 
is that the, those electrons are really picky and only get excited by photons that carry a certain amount of energy that they're looking for. So uh, the amount of energy that any specific photon has is related to its wavelength, where you know shorter wavelengths like blue or light has more energy than longer wavelengths into you know infrared, um, and uh, that wavelength that the solar cell likes depends on the material that it's based on, right? For example, that's why we all when we see solar cells, there are always silicon or gallium arsenide um, because those semiconductors like that that's that's their thing and uh just another quick sidebar is this is insane to me because this is how cameras work this is how camera sensors that are based on semiconductors collect photons as data right because you have photons hit the cells excites the electrons you collect those electrons in the same way that these solar cells are um and instead of uh designing your semiconductor to just get as many photons and collect as much charge as possible you might select materials and stuff to collect a specific wavelength um because that's the kind of light that you're interested in for night vision maybe yeah that kind of blew my mind that solar arrays are basically just giant cameras that just care if things are on or off and <laughs> if it's on they want more right so okay that sidebar aside that's how solar cells work the fundamentals anyway interesting so if you were in an environment where the available energy on the electromagnetic spectrum was different so mm -hmm. in orbit it's what you know the 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 frequencies that the sun emits but if you were in an environment that where let's say you have a lot of i don't know infrared or ultraviolet light so then your solar cells would potentially be made out of entirely different materials. That's exactly right. right? Yeah. So uh, the sun emits black body radiation. So it's a continuous spectrum. Like every wavelength in between from the shortest to the longest is emitted at some level by the sun. Yes. But on the surface of Earth, the atmosphere absorbs uh, different portions of the spectrum. So... Um, yeah, which material you use is like uh, really the efficiency you get out of your solar array um, on Earth or under an atmosphere, for example, are uh, does depend on the wavelengths that it's sensitive to. And weirdly, silicon is and gallium arsenide are really sensitive to the infrared, but not very sensitive to green light, which is the strongest signal that makes it through the atmosphere. So go figure. Uh, just the the nature of those materials. Interesting. Yeah, that's the that's basically what I was, what happened when I was researching about these solar rays was, huh, interesting. So now, what makes uh, these new solar panels different than the old ones? The solar arrays that were launched in the the first one was launched in two thousand. The rest of them followed shortly thereafter. They're based on um, crystalline silicon. And uh, they look, you know, the classic blue. Um, and they're they use a single junction, a single one of these, uh, a single one of these energy collecting semiconductor circuits, a single layer of them. So um, that's like the basic you can get, the most basic you can get with solar arrays. The new ones are triple junction, and 
That's just a fancy way of saying that uh, they use multiple layers of these PN junctions to collect more light that otherwise might be lost. And this is another thing that kind of blew my mind here. So <laughs> this is crazy. So imagine you have one layer, some photons are absorbed, the rest are ignored because those materials don't care about the shorter or longer wavelengths. They just like like the ones they get. So if you make that layer transparent, so instead of like absorbing the excess as heat, it the light passes through, you can put another layer underneath it that's sensitive to a different wavelength to capture up all the scraps. And um, a triple junction solar cell has three layers. These are usually based on gallium arsenide, uh, for example, indium gallium arsenide junctions. And um, this is relatively common nowadays, but back in the 2000s, basically didn't exist or as far as I know. So these new solar cells are triple junction gallium arsenide solar rays. And like this actually isn't that new when it comes to spacecraft, but for the ISS, this is a leap ahead in uh, technology by like at least uh, one, if not two decades. Another fun fact that I found out is that the Mir space station actually used gallium arsenide solar cells instead of silicon ones because they had different design parameters. Yeah. Uh, the Mir ones weren't triple junction, but they were based on a different, uh, the ISS one had silicon instead of gallium arsenide. So, so I, I guess then that begs the question why the ISS was launched with um, sil silicon-based solar cells. Do we know anything about the trade study that was done at the time and the reasoning behind why single junction cells were launched? Um, I think the, the reason why single junction was launched is because the triple junction wasn't uh, as developed then as it is now. Uh, developing multi-junction solar rays with like multiple layers of materials is a lot harder um, and a lot more advanced in technology compared to single junction. As far as the um, material base, like whether it's silicon or gallium arsenide uh, based semiconductors, I don't know for sure. I couldn't really find too many details on the, the difference. I just thought it was interesting. Um, but yeah, that that's the difference in fundamental technology for the cells themselves. But that's not the whole story. And like that's just like the surface, literally the surface of what you see on these solar cells. There's a bunch of different ways that these solar arrays actually look when it comes to the space station. Like uh, when they're installed, you'll notice a few different things. One is uh, where they're installed. And uh, that's basically on top of the old ones. The solar arrays are mounted on these gimbals. So if you like hold out your hand and your palm is the, the sun, the light collecting surface, if you rotate your hand, like turn your wrist, the solar arrays can do that um, to follow the sun to make sure they're getting the most efficient, uh, to make sure the light is hitting it at the most efficient angle. These new solar arrays, slap them right on top. There's a little bit of spacing, so they're not touching the old arrays, but they're mounted at the same exact base and they use the same uh, power connectors 
and the same mechanism to turn them and gamble them. So it's a literal like replacement for the old ones, but the old ones are still going to be there and still going to be collecting energy. There's one other major difference between the solar arrays that are going to be installed uh, in 2021 and the ones from the 2000s. And that's the deployment mechanism. So TJ mentioned the rollout solar array ROSA experiment. And these solar arrays are launched as these canisters, these cylindrical canisters. And uh, when they're deployed, they unfurl like a scroll. Like the, there's a, a mechanism that pushes it out and it just un, unravels itself. Um, and this is different because the old arrays folded up like an accordion. I tried to look into the difference, like why? I think it's uh, part of it is because um, when the space station was being constructed, the first solar array was installed in 2000 and then the following ones were installed years later. And so what they ended up doing is they took off the truss holding the original solar arrays and moved them around to a different part of the station. And to do that, they retracted the solar arrays, moved the truss, and then expanded them, deployed them again. And um, when they did, when they redeployed the truss, or when they redeployed the solar arrays, the a portion of the substrate, the the blanket that holds all the arrays together, got caught on a guide wire and actually tore. Um, so there's there's a rip in one of these uh, solar arrays that's on the space station right now, caused by a problem when they were deploying it. Uh, when it was unfolding like this. So I'm kind of speculating, but maybe this rollout array, uh, it definitely gets around that problem of uh, having to unfold since it's rolled out. I will also add that flexible photovoltaic materials are fairly novel or fairly recent. So those, It's like putting it on a curve instead yes. of a flat. And having them be flexible. It's more of a recent development than in the early 2000s or late 1990s when the ISS was being built and designed. Phil, so you mentioned that these new panels go on top of the existing panels. Why mm -hmm. are they going on top of them instead of being attached someplace else where they wouldn't block the light? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great question. So uh, these solar the solar arrays that are on the space station need to be able to rotate in order to follow the sun. If they don't, then a lot, a ton of the potential energy collection is lost if the the sun and uh, is at the wrong angle with respect to the solar rays. So you want to turn them because we need that power. And so um, the trusses that hold the solar rays have these gimbal assemblies that track that angle. It's called the beta angle. And they're already there. They're already installed and they're big honking things. They're huge. If you were to install the new arrays in some other location, they would have to rotate in a different way. You'd have to install more gimbals. It would be a whole deal. So if, uh, what they're doing is they're actually, for the new arrays, they're installing a bracket that attaches to the existing gimbal and uh, just lets the other, uh, just lets the new arrays kind of also use it, right? Sit on top. Hmm. What happens to the old arrays? Do they still generate power or are they completely blocked out? 
The new arrays are smaller, so the the old arrays are sit behind it and still do collect power. This is uh, basically an additive upgrade. So the old arrays won't be as efficient as they would be unobstructed, but they're still producing power. Even though the old arrays had a design life of 15 years, which the first set is already passed, it's still working, right? So these solar arrays have the potential to keep generating power long after their design life. And so by putting the old arrays in the same spot and sort of covering them up, you get basically an optimal trade-off. You don't have to install new gimbals. When the old solar arrays die because they're just at the end of their design life, uh, you don't really lose much, right? Uh, It's no worse than if you took them out. But if you keep them there, you get the added benefit of harvesting that extra energy while they're still working. It's like... It's just an optimal trade-off, really. That's pretty cool. I guess if if you asked me 10 years ago, you know, just just off the cuff, if this would make sense, it it would sound like a very odd thing to do. Mm -hmm. But I suppose this is what maintaining an orbital outpost for decades looks like. Yeah. Another interesting note here that I think has been overlooked by a lot of the coverage that I've seen um, and honestly, I just found out this morning before we started recording, is uh, why there are only new, six new arrays being installed. We have eight arrays that are currently on the ISS. So why are we only installing six new ones? I didn't find a direct answer, but I can explain why it would make sense. Each of the six new arrays produce about the same amount of power as the old ones. So um, even though they're smaller, they're more efficient, the newer technology, they're you know roughly comparable. The six old arrays together produce about the same amount of power as the eight current ones do. So even though they're smaller, they're a little bit more efficient, it's newer technology, so it's on par, and you can get the same amount of output with six as then you could then with eight. So this means if all of the old eight ones died right on their 15th year birthday, you would be fine. All the existing systems would still work because you'd still have the same amount of power output. Since they aren't going to die right at 15 years, you get the added bonus of extra energy, like I mentioned. So then it's like, well, why not install eight? Why not get more energy and have more capacity? And uh, this is just me thinking through the process, but if you added more panels, that would be more mass and more cost and more work to install with extra spacewalks. But another interesting point is that if you collect more power than you need, that extra power, like the batteries are going to be charged. They're going to be pretty full and you're still going to be generating power. So you have to radiate it away as heat. And so um, adding more solar panels literally wouldn't wouldn't get you anything. The point when it would become useful is later on when the ISS maybe gets expanded upon with commercial modules or new modules get added by Russia and other other places. And we're just not there yet. And so I think this proves that, like, obviously we could just add two more. It doesn't seem like too big of a deal um, if five years down the line we discover that more power is needed. But, um, yeah, those extra two panels just wouldn't wouldn't get us any benefit, really. So 
Yeah, the, I mean, I could go. I I did some research on this. I think I'll put it in a blog in the blog post. You can see all these visuals and stuff. Um, it's kind of hard to explain in just audio. The visuals are cool. Yeah, uh, especially the little animation of the rollout solar array prototype just being unfurled into space. So, so with these new hardware upgrades, how long can the ISS actually last, Ferris? Yeah, so this is a question that's a bit, or the answer to this question is a bit amorphous, right? So uh, let's just, I guess, okay, let's put the money aside for a second and discuss the structures at play here and, and the systems at play. Over time, even though we can replace components, you one of the things we can experience or can see is metal fatigue on structures and older modules. So the ISS is in orbit, low Earth orbit, and experiences about 16 day-night cycles. So, and and that's in vacuum. So, it you know you, all the structures heat up and cool rapidly multiple times a day. So this this creates additional um, fatigue on the materials at um, involved here, and over time can result in the development of stress fractures and increases the risk for all the occupants on board. So that, that's one area. Um, on top of that, um, the ISS and the modules kind of involved are all pressurized systems. And so there are pressure seals at play here that also experience temperature fluctuations. So these seals also have a limited lifespan. And when you're dealing with pressurized systems, your seals are critical points of failure. So that that's another area. Um, and and I will add that a lot of this information that I, I'm kind of going over is actually from a study in 2010 before the ISS was officially quote unquote completed. And that was a study made um, by NASA um, in associ association with Boeing that has the servicing contract for the ISS. And in that study, the question that was at play is how long can the ISS last? And whether 2024 was the date or whether it could be expanded or extended to 2028. So they're so, ex ex uh, exploring this question yes. that we're talking about now all the way back in 2010? Yes. Yes. For long-term planning purposes. So the question of how long can the ISS last and how long should it be supported for and you know this bouncing back between 2024 and 2028 and the pros and cons is something that's been kind of discussed for a while but from that report uh, a few a few of these kind of key factors or key risks are are kind of outlined and so in it metal fatigue is one of them intramodule pressure seal fatigue is also another aspect um, another thing that is assessed is high pressure oxygen lines um, have limited lifespans. It's another pressurized system, um, and these oxygen lines are used for EVA and life support systems, and um, they also have a limited lifespan. And then I, I think one of the final kind of key risks or key items that kind of start to degrade and start to lower the performance of the whole station is um, EEPROM memory on compute modules, on microcontrollers and computers all throughout the station start to wear out. And so you start to lose um, stored memory on board some of the 
computers, and these are put throughout the whole station for telemetry collection, control, um, and management of these systems. And so after a few decades, you start to experience unreliability even in your electronic components. Now, none of these things by by themselves like are are um, a hard kind of limiting factor for the International Space Station because each one of them can be theoretically fixed and replaced. And um, and then this is something TJ mentioned earlier in our podcast, but you can replace all of these components and you can spend the money to do it. But the question then becomes all about cost. It all becomes all about cost and risk. Some of these components take a long time to um, replace and manufacture, especially when you have a lot of heritage old components. Reacquiring them or remanufacturing them might become not feasible. So you have to come up with a modern alternative that somehow still integrates with a lot of the old systems on board. And as mentioned earlier, first module was launched in 1998, which is the Zarya module. And that's, and you can imagine a lot of these systems already have quote unquote heritage systems on board. So things that were tried and tested and reliable at the time, which means some of these things were even older than the 1990s. And so maintaining the infrastructure, the supply chain, and um, kind of the specific know-how and details of how these old system work, systems worked becomes kind of cost prohibitive and not very productive. The other thing is, so, so part of it is this takes time, which means you're exposing people on the station to risk if you cannot replace these things quickly enough. And the other is cost. This is expensive. And so at some point, the trade-off becomes do we keep spending a lot of, of a lot of this current all, a lot of the current resources on maintaining really old infrastructure, or do we just spend less money on something new? At some point, so I have a yes. Feel free. To so ask. I have a question. Understanding, uh, like that, all makes sense to me. It, it follows a logical progression. I understand the hardware considerations, design considerations, and stuff. What is, um, what I don't quite understand is. That 2024 to 2028 range, is that based on the these fatigue factors, like the end of the design life of those parts, or is that the result of the trade study, the trade-off between when it becomes infeasible to repair? Like, will these systems start failing in 2024 and then continue to fail worse in 2028? Or is it like things were failing all the time and that's the point when it gets cost prohibitive? I think a lot of the considerations from, from what I've seen in the report are more, more risk-based considerations than cost. But it's not like the, the dates 2024 and 2028 are like the result of the trade study, not necessarily the design life. I think in that context, it's those dates are when the risks reach a point where you have to reconsider whether that risk is worth taking. It seems to be a kind of a more of a leadership kind of question that is currently being assessed by the leadership of both NASA and at times the White House and Congress. Because it does involve the allocation of resources alongside risk, right? 
risk can be reduced by increasing the allocation of resources. But if you look at the, the current ISS budget, which balances back between three and four billion dollars, depending on um, the activities for the year and the components being replaced, that is a pretty sizable chunk of the NASA budget. Now, half of that is for doing science and operating it. The other half, about 1.5 to $2 billion, is being used for maintenance. That's a sizable chunk. Holy cow. Yes, it is a lot of money. But we also do get a lot of science back from the ISS. How do we extend the, the design, the life of the space station? Like you, you mentioned replacing parts, but like, is that the end of the road? Like how do, is it possible to, to like change the calculus so that this trade study of design life of parts isn't the only limiting factor or can we like, can we decouple the lifespan of the space station from that trade of the lifespan of parts and maintenance costs? I think the the best way to extend the lifespan of the station with regards to these components that are reaching their end of life involves replacing those components, either adding in uh, exact copies or improvements like we see with the solar panels. And I think uh an exciting kind of outgrowth of that is this Axiom commercial space station, um, which is originally intended to be added upon and on top of the ISS, but could become its own dedicated space station. Right. So the path forward in that case would be growing a new space station from the ISS. And then like the ISS would live out its useful life. And then you'd have a new one. Like it would be, replicated almost except by a commercial company essentially yes ferris do you know how the like how does this axiom stuff work so so the path forward for axiom is the first the first that well the current plan is that the first module goes up on 20 in 2024 it is berthed or docked to the space station um uh, where a docking port would be where like a capsule would go yes um and this first module has um, some hab space. It has a cupola module for sightseeing, so it seems to be catered a bit towards potential tourists. And along with it is some additional utility components to that module, so some research tools and space. Um, after that, there's a dedicated hab module that gets sent, also docks, pretty close to the first module on the same kind of hub component. Um, that is mainly meant for, again, astronauts and potential tourists. I, I will, a, a quote from kind of some of the descriptions on the Axiom's website is, amenities include high-speed Wi-Fi, video screens, picture windows, and a glass-walled uh, cupola. So you very, can- Very, very comfort- Focused. You know, like human human creature comfort focused. Yeah. Yes. Uh, from there on, there's a third module. So for there's a total of four modules that are, that are going to make it their way to the ISS. The third one is a lab module. It's meant for research and manufacturing. So potential in-space manufacturing applications and some um, kind of research um, amenities and, and, and research-based equipment. 
equipment, right? The fourth module is one that's meant for independence. It, it, it provides basic infrastructure, including power, thermal control, and, pot and potential propulsion to those three modules so they can cleanly uh, decouple from the ISS and become independent and become their own space station when the time comes for them um, to separate. So that makes sense. It's like first you show that you can have a module and that's like the, the cupola one. And then you have a reason for people to be inside. And then that's another one and something for the future too, where you might want tourists in there. And then the third one is like money making potential beyond tourism with research and manufacturing and then independence. So like the fourth module, what what's the timeline? before we might get there. Is that decades out? That seems to be unclear, but what seems to be implied is all of these modules will be ready before the ISS decommissioning. But it, it, things seem to... The implied timeline there is the ISS is going to be lasting until 2028. Since, since the first module is being launched in 2024. And I will note that these modules are being manufactured by Talos Alenia which is um, a European contractor that was heavily involved in the ISS. So, yeah, that, that's a good point. So, like, the ISS was an international cooperation between governments. Is Axiom a European company, or is this an American company collaborating with an international partner? Like, I'd hope to see that cooperation stay alive, right? Phil, I think the key point there is that the International Space Station had to be international to secure enough government funding and to lock in government funding into inter-country treaties to see it begin and end. Mm -hmm. And when you start, when you talk about government space, that's the kind of cooperation and planning you need to do to make that stuff work. But the hope with a commercial space station is that there is enough commercial value in doing things in space that that value can pay for the infrastructure itself so now you can have a commercial space station that is producing science and products and you know company research that can pay for the maintenance that can pay for supply runs and that lets the governments focus on the next big challenge that's more risky Right. Government funding is great for high risk endeavors where there isn't a set business case and business plan. And it lets us kind of push forward and enable new, better things. It's hard to get commercial companies to push into high risk and unknown uh, areas. So it really is kind of a attempt to change the guard and, and really saying that a low Earth orbit space station is safe and valuable and something that just humans in general want to do and let the government go and do new, never-before-done things. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So speaking of the commercial players when it comes to space stations, there aren't too many. Um, there's Axiom, which is the one that we're talking about now, and then it was in competition with Bigelow, which um, you mentioned before, TJ, the beam module, the Bigelow expandable um, 
I forget what the A stands for, but the expandable advanced module, module or whatever. Activity module. Yeah. So that the Bigelow launched a module that was birthed to the ISS and then like unfolded itself and was pressurized and people could get inside. But now what whatever happened to Bigelow? Where are they now? Um unfortunately, I think they they I think they went out of business at the beginning of twenty twenty. I think Oh uh, Yeah. That is the politically correct answer there. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is true. So are there any other uh companies right now competing with Axiom? No. Interesting. Oh but you know what? Um I was I just looked it up. Technically, so Bigelow is quote unquote out of business. But what technically happened is in March 2020 they fired or laid off all their employees on on public record they said they will rehire the staff when conditions permit oh bad timing too for those people well it's unfortunate it's all interrelated with regards to the COVID-19 pandemic so like Robert Bigelow his fortune is through hotels and so the hotel industry is impacted via COVID-19 um, and the important note is that the workforce has been laid off which cuts down your your Burn. operating expenses dramatically but the company as an entity still existed it didn't go bankrupt and the company has the license to this inflatable um, habitation module technology from NASA um, so as long as the company exists, they can continue to have that exclusive contract. And then if and when they get more money, they can hire people back and continue where okay. they were. If they went bankrupt, they would have to sell and liquidate that contract as like an asset potentially. And yeah. another either NASA, it would revert back to NASA or another company would buy that. Um, but it really kind of points to how this inflatable module technology has kind of been um housed in a, a single entity All right it was developed by NASA and then NASA uh, in order to spur more commercial interest and activity in space gave them an exclusive license uh, for a limited period of time uh, but unfortunately the licensee has not been able to capitalize it as as ambitiously as they've done right they've built uh beam the Bigelow expandable activity module which, did fly on the ISS and it worked great. They had two test modules before that that were free flying, but we're not seeing these massive like BA 2100 modules, which is 2100 cubic meters of compre- of pressurized volume. Like we're, we haven't seen those and it's unlikely we'll see those kinds of modules. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's for low earth orbit. How long before we start to see this type of, uh, philosophy it or make its way toward like lunar gateway things we've talked in the past about lunar gateway being supplied by commercial uh, launch providers and um, like logistics contracts basically for the for a station orbiting something other than earth like that seems like where where we're headed is to for the government to build something or a contract something to be built like a space station over there around the moon, maybe. 
and then transition to more and more commercial suppliers and, and maintainers. Is that right? I think the, the commercial lunar payload services program is kind of that commercialization effort for the moon. And that sets uh, down the customer on the moon. So it says that NASA will be the customer and it will pay people or pay companies to deliver payload to the surface of the moon and pay companies to take material off the moon and return it to Earth. And so it sets the market as at least one customer. And then it can sets the framework for companies to say, hey, okay, we have the engineer, <clears throat> the engineers and the idea. Let's go out and get commercial funding to develop this technology. We know we have a customer. We, uh, I think Jim Bryanson said we're trying to set the price of what you know one kilogram of, of lunar rocks would cost or what you could get paid for for delivering it back to Earth. Um, and once you have that, then that kind of closes the, the business case for it. Um, and again, the key aspect about these commercial uh, programs is that they bring in uh, commercial money that isn't NASA's budget, right? And so if a properly set up commercial uh, program like this can actually, actually be a funding multiplier for NASA, where NASA can put up, say, $100 million and get 500, 600 plus million dollars invested from actual commercial investors. So it actually increases the amount of money that um, is being spent on space, and it's kind of using uh, NASA as kind of the leadership and the you know primary customer uh, role. And to run this back to why we're talking about this um, instead of the solar panels, it's because the solar arrays, uh, the solar array upgrades that are being installed in 2021, enable all of this to grow. Because right now, as it stands. Um, there's no, it, it seems like there's not much headroom for like a commercial uh, space station to add on and do all the things they want to do, add Wi-Fi, add these research modules. Like there's not enough power to go around, especially with arrays that are at the end of their design life. So these new solar arrays are being installed with newer technology um, to extend the lifetime of this power system and provide additional power to be used for these uh new activities and and also obviously their existing experiments so yeah at the space station forever man i like the space station i think it's uh it it's been there for as long as i can really remember ever since i've been interested in space there has been a space station an international space station and like the more I, I never really appreciated it. It's like the uh, looking back on the shuttle and never really appreciating the complexity uh, of the system. And um, same with the ISS, like the fact that these modules were attached to each other and then moved around while the station was like functioning is uh, insane. And um, it's just incredible that there are astronauts on board that go out into space in their little mini spaceships that are made of fabric and you know, uh, the tiny little layer that separates them from the vacuum of space um, to go and install things like these new solar arrays is just mind blowing. Um, not to mention the fact that I realized that solar arrays and cameras are basically the same. Yeah, hopefully as price to orbit goes down, we should be able to see more and more 
space stations and space activities take place as it becomes cheaper to get people and supplies and the modules themselves up there the cost barrier hopefully should go down and perhaps we should be able to see more space stations some with additional private accommodations for tourists more manufacturing in space and along with it more science yeah um i guess there's one last question that we didn't really answer and that's like how confident are we that the space station will continue to be operating past 2024 and will it actually go dark in 2028 is that a big question mark still that we just not know? It might expand. I don't know. I guess it's something we don't know. I don't think anyone knows. It's in the oh, speculation man. zone. It could operate past 2028. I've seen at least some information pointing towards that. But I think it's just unexplored, as in a new risk assessment probably needs to be done, I'd imagine, since the last one was done in 2010. 10 years ago. 11 years 11 ago. years ago. Damn. All right. Any final thoughts, TJ? My cat is attacking my desk. Staring at me. Phil, any closing remarks? Sorry, Mark. We meant for this to be a short, focused episode. <laughs> That's my closing remarks. Thanks for listening to our episode on the new solar arrays being installed on the space station. If you like this one, make sure you subscribe to get future ones. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And you can check out our huge backlog of uh, more than 80 episodes that we've done in the past. And also blog posts, deep dives into different missions, interviews with key people in the space industry. We've got an episode with Tori Bruno. We've got an episode with Chris Hadfield. We've got a bunch of episodes with NASA people and space startups. We also have a lot of commentaries on what's going on in the space industry. There's a lot to enjoy. You can check it all out on our website, blog.specscast.com. And uh, please let us know what you think of the show and how we can make it better. Drop us a line at specscast on Twitter or specscast at gmail.com. Our music is by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>